0: You kind of get a picture that they're involved in each other's lives and there's a very active group there, a lot of life going on there. Last week we started a four-week sermon series titled Life Groups. Last week we looked at Acts 2 and looked into the early church and saw this, this community that they developed, saw that they were committed to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, breaking bread, the prayers. And, and as the early church committed to these things together, God began to turn the world upside down. As they got involved in each other's lives, began meeting each other's very practical needs, and they didn't just stop with meeting each other's needs. They went to all of the poor of society and all of the people who were left out and on the fringes. And the story, the book of Acts tells the story of these early disciples literally turning the world upside down, as they got involved deeply in each other's lives. Last week, I gave some reasons why we are changing the name of our small group ministry to life group ministry, not meaning to make that awkward for you. You can still call it small groups if you like, but we wanted to name the thing something that communicated more than that it's small, that this is where life happens. This is where people belong, where people get involved in each other's lives, where people grow one wanted a word that was more descriptive. We also wanted some core values that were easy for you to remember. We already had some, but they were very complicated. We came up with three words, belong, become, bless, in that order. And what we want to do the next three weeks is look at each of these core values and tell why we think this is a, a key biblical value that ought to be a part of life group ministry. So let's pray together as we begin today. Jesus, we want more than anything for you to be glorified, for you to be the center of all things. And really, everything that, that Arthur and Nate shared, it's, it's not about how well their group is doing, but it's, it's all to bring glory to you as your people get involved in each other's lives and love each other the way you command them to. It brings glory to you. And this morning, I pray as we come to your word that you would be our teacher, Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate your word, help us to see it, bring it to life to us, help us to obey it. It's in your name we pray, amen. One of the questions that we often ask among the pastors and elders is, how do you care for a thousand people? And the truth is, there's probably more like twelve or 1,300 people that would call Alliance their church home, people that that are part of the family, and we ask, how do we care for, how do we provide care for people here? You know, the model of ministry that that the church has used for the last several hundred years is a model that says the paid pastor does all of the work, that there's a person or a group of staff that are paid to do the work of the ministry. Now, this model of the pastor doing everything, it works, until the church grows to about 80 people. And then it becomes very difficult for one person to be the center caregivers, the the central discipler, mentor, counselor of everyone. You know, it's interesting that about 80% of the churches in the United States run an average attendance of 100 or less. And I suspect that part of this might be that their model of ministry puts a ceiling on on what they can actually accomplish because the pastor has to be in charge of all things. This is not a statement against churches that are small. I know a lot of smaller churches that are doing incredible things in their community. Reality is living things grow. Churches that are impacting their community find themselves growing. If the church of Jesus Christ is going to be effective to be all that Jesus calls it to be, then we have to find a model of ministry that is bigger than one person trying to meet all of the needs. And and I believe the scripture provides us with this model that we need. If you have a Bible, turn to Exodus 18, second book of the Bible, Old Testament, Exodus 18. We'll start in verse 13. In Exodus 18, Moses' father-in-law comes for a visit. And Moses is excited to to see his wife and his boys or his children and his father-in-law comes and Moses tells all about how God delivered them out of Egypt, how God parted the Red Sea and God's people crossed on dry ground and how Pharaoh was destroyed. And as he's telling his father-in-law all that God has done, Jethro makes a statement that truly the God of Israel is greater than all other gods. And he offers up worship to God. As they're talking and during his visit, Jethro notices a serious flaw in Moses' leadership. Let's read Exodus 18 and see if you can pick up the flaw. Verse 13, the next day Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people. And they stood around him from morning till evening. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, What is this you're doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses answered, Because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it's brought to me, and I decide between the parties and form them of God's decrees and laws. Moses' father-in-law replied, What you're doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Moses is the spiritual leader of God's people. God has raised up Moses to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt and into the freedom of the Promised Land. God communicates his law to Moses to pass on to the people. Clearly, God has called Moses to be the leader, and clearly God is using him. But now that they're out of Egypt and on their own, Moses finds himself in a position where he has to solve every single problem. Every day, Moses gets up and he takes his seat out in the desert. People begin to line up. Hopefully, he has a little canopy over him. The People line up from morning until evening all day long there is this line of people that never goes away and moses sits and his people approach him they state their problem he offers the solution they go away next group of people approach and this is going on from sun up until sundown can you try to imagine what this line looks like all these people out in the hot desert sun angry at each other probably bickering all through the day till they get up to Moses to solve their problem. And imagine you're in line, and you've been arguing with your friend all day, and, it's, and you're almost up to Moses, and he puts up the sign, closed, come back tomorrow. And you've got to stand in that line all over again. This is what Moses is doing. People are lining up, and he's solving the problems. And Jethro says, why are you doing this all by yourself? Why are you the only person that people can come to to have their needs met? And Moses answers, he says, I do this because they come to me. Do you notice that this is a bit of a reactionary answer, that Moses is reacting to a problem? Well, I do it because they're lining up. What, am I, what else am I supposed to do? They're lining up in front of me. I have no choice Maybe there's some sense in which Moses likes feeling needed. Maybe he likes it. Maybe it it makes him feel important that he has the answer to everyone's problem. Professional counselors call this a Messiah complex, and I'll give you a hint. It's not a good thing to have. Maybe he likes being in charge. Maybe he likes being needed. Whatever the case, Jethro says, what you're doing is not good This is not a good model of ministry. You're going to wear yourself out and you're going to wear the people out. If you continue with a model that hinges on one person, you're going to burn out. The work is too great. And get this, no one is satisfied. Everyone's frustrated with the model. The people are worn out. Jethro has a suggestion. Verse 19, he says, Listen to me. And I will give you some advice, and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them the decrees and laws. Show them the way to live and the duties there to perform. Notice he affirms Moses' leadership. He affirms that, yes, Moses, you are the leader. You are the one who must teach the people God's law. You're the one that's to communicate God's ways to the people and how they're supposed to live. That is absolutely a job that you have. But the work is so significant that it cannot be done by you alone. You have to involve others. In addition to being the people's representative of God and teaching them God's ways, Moses also has the job of equipping others to be involved in the work. Look at verse 21. Jethro says to his son-in-law, But select men from all the people, capable men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times. But have them bring every difficult case to you, the simple cases they can decide for themselves. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you If you do this and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain, and all these people will go home satisfied. I love the the way the NIV ends this, and all the people will go home in peace. Jethro instructs Moses, you've got to train others to be involved in this work. Part of Moses' job is to teach other people how to solve problems and meet needs. And the model that Jethro gives is breaking people down into smaller units all the way down to groups of ten. And this is really what we're aiming at with our life group ministry is that everybody at Alliance would somehow be connected in groups of ten. And you know, all of our elders have agreed to take on shepherding responsibilities of two or three life group leaders, which means at every point you're, you're just one phone call away from a church elder, someone who's been called by God to shepherd the flock. This is what we're aiming for, to practice this model. He says in verse 21, uh, I already read that, didn't I? Um, I realize that, and we realize that just putting people in groups doesn't create community. We, we know that that simply assigning you to a group of ten Uh, doesn't accomplish what happened in the book of Acts. It doesn't guarantee that you're going to connect with these people or even enjoy doing life with these people, but we believe it's a place to start. We're trying to set the table to make it easier for disconnected people to get connected. One of Moses' jobs is to train others to share in the work of the ministry. One of my favorite writers is a guy named Larry Crabb. Larry Crabb is a Christian counselor who's been practicing for over 50 years. About 25 years into his practice, Larry Crabb wrote what at the time was a rather controversial book in the counseling community. It was a book titled Connecting. And one of the things that Larry Crabb, professional counselor, said in this book, he said about 90% of the things that people go to professional counseling for really that doesn't require professional counseling. It simply requires a friend. He says in the book, he says, if you carefully look beneath all the non-physiologically caused problems that therapists label as psychological disorders, you will find disconnected souls, peoples whose attempts to live life in their own strength have left them isolated, detached, and alone. Now, let me just throw out a couple of things that I'm not trying to say here. One, I'm not against Christian counseling. We have a number of Christian counselors and mental health professionals in our church, and we are thrilled that they do the work that they do. We very often refer people to them for counseling. I am 100% supportive of Christian counseling. But what I'm trying to say is that some needs, in fact, many needs... Most of the things that I talk to people about in the church office are problems that that you could help them solve. They're they're not that complicated. They simply need someone who's willing to listen and uh, provide some feedback. And here's another thing that I'm not saying with this quote. I'm not saying that if you have a psychological disorder, it's because you weren't in a life group. Well, that would be silly. That would be overly simplistic Here's what I'm trying to say with this. Trying to affirm you that God has gifted each one of you in the family of God to take care of each other's needs. God has put his Holy Spirit inside of you. He's given you his word. And about 90% of the stuff that professional counselors are dealing with, if you would be willing to sit and listen and understand and empathize and enter into the story and say, you know what, I'd be willing to talk with you about this every week. I'd be willing to get coffee with you, get lunch with you. I will walk with you through this whole thing. You know, you're equipped by God to do that. Doesn't mean that there won't be times that, that people have to be referred to professional counselors, but by and large, God has equipped you to be involved in each other's lives and bring grace and healing to each other. You see, I agree with Larry Crabb that most of, most of the problems that we deal with in this room can be solved by someone else who's willing to listen and care. Our life group ministry is not just another program that we're trying to keep going here at the church. We believe it's actually vital for people's growth and well-being. We, we believe it's actually vital that people have a place to belong. Jethro tells Moses, you've got to train others to help with the work of the ministry. You know, I, I've heard this before in context where the pastor's trying to get other people involved in ministry. I've actually heard people say, well, that's his job. That's what we pay the pastor to do, or that's what we pay the staff to do. That's why we hired them to do the ministry. Remember what we learned in Ephesians chapter 4? It's up on the screen. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. One of the the things God has called pastors to do in this translation that's translated as shepherd, one of the things God has called pastors to do is to equip the whole body of Christ to carry out the work of ministry. Ministry was never designed to be done by one person alone. Under the old model that we're looking at in Exodus 18, Moses is the sole arbitrator of everything. And no one is ultimately happy. People's needs are not met in a timely manner. They're standing in line from sunup until sundown. And Jethro says, Moses, if you'll break people down in the smaller units and train other leaders in how to meet needs, everybody will go home in peace. You know, we believe at Alliance Bible Fellowship that you will be more satisfied if you're connected with other people who are interested in getting in your life and being a part of your life. We actually believe that you'll be more satisfied in this context than simply waiting in line at scott andrews's office or doug cheshire's office to have your needs met we actually believe god has equipped and gifted all of you to share in this work exodus 18 24 it says moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said don't you wish you all had son-in-laws who were so compliant he listened he did it all he chose capable men from all Israel and made them leaders of the people. Officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They served as judges for the people at all times. The difficult cases they brought to Moses, but the simple ones they decided themselves. Then Moses sent his father-in-law on his way, and Jethro returned to his own country. Exodus 18 has it's always been a model that we've tried to use for our life group ministry here at Alliance, and now we're We've decided to ramp up our efforts and and make make it really super easy for anybody who's disconnected to get connected. We're trying to put more energy and more effort by, by bringing the entire elder board into shepherding and providing leadership for this ministry. And it's our hope that by giving you opportunities to connect in groups of 10 or 12 people, that you'll actually find yourself going home in peace. Let me switch metaphors for about five or six more minutes. One of the metaphors the Bible uses to describe us as people is the family of God, brothers and sisters in Christ. We've been adopted into a family. Not long ago, we studied the book of Galatians. Let me read from Galatians 4, 4 to 7. It says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, Born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. Catch this part. So that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. As believers, you and I are described as sons and daughters of God. Sons and daughters who, who are entitled to an inheritance. We've been brought into the family of God. Not long ago, we studied Ephesians chapter 1. Do you remember what was in Ephesians 1? Predestination. Yes, that was there. But there's another word that you might have missed on account of that P word that we're not going to say again today. Look at Ephesians 1, 4 to 6. I actually, I have to read it one more time. It says, In love he predestined us for what? For adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. We just sang that scripture earlier with which he has blessed us in the beloved. You see, from all eternity it was God's plan to adopt you into a family. This is very important to God, that you see yourself as adopted, brought into the family of God. It's very important to God that you see yourself as a son and daughter of God. In my home church, we used to sing this song on Sunday nights, and I thought it was a little bit hokey. We would often, if attendance was a little lower or if the pastor just felt led, he would say at the end on Sunday night, let's circle up and everybody hold hands and we would work around the sanctuary and we would sing this song, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I'll be honest, I thought it was hokey at the time, but there was something also that I liked about it. As I looked around the circle and I saw old people and little kids, I saw people that were well off, people that were really struggling, people of different shapes and sizes and colors and different backgrounds and different personalities, all holding hands, declaring a theological truth that we are the family of God. You know, it's the one thing that brings each of us together in this room. You look around, there's a lot of different kind of folks in the room. But we've all been adopted into a family together. We are part of the family of God. Ephesians 2.19, it says, You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God. You know, family has a responsibility of taking care of family. Isn't that true? Family has family's backs. Brothers and sisters take care of each other. You know, it's not just that we're a whole bunch of individuals who have found a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, though we are that. We're not just a bunch of individuals who've been saved from sin and death and hell. We're also a family together. You've been brought into a family. And it's interesting, Jesus does something with the definition of family. He expands it a little bit. Matthew, Mark and Luke all record this. I'm going to read from Mark 3. It's early on in Jesus' ministry, His mother and brothers come to get him, and I'm guessing uh, to bring him back home, because he's out stirring up trouble, teaching and such. Mark 3:32, a crowd was sitting around him, and they said, "Your mother and brothers are outside seeking you." And look how Jesus answers. "Who are my mother and my brothers?" And looking about those who sat around him, he said, you all are my mother, my brothers, my sisters. He takes the definition of family and he expands it and says when you've been adopted into the household of God, your brothers and sisters together. And as brothers and sisters, we have an obligation to make sure no one is left out. We have an obligation to make sure that there's no one in this family that's struggling alone. And can I tell you that there are people right now in the family that are struggling alone? We have an obligation to fix that. No one in the family should hurt alone. No one in the family should have to walk in and pretend that everything is okay when it's not. No one in the family should have to pretend that they're a better Christian than they really are. You see, as family, it needs to be a place where we can put it all out before each other and help each other in the journey. You know, a real practical way to get connected with our life group ministry. We've, we've actually set some tables up outside of this door through this second foyer here, and we've set some tables up up top, and there's some Actual physical sign-up sheets. They tell what night a group meets, who's leading it, how many spaces are still available. And you can pick up a pen and sign up. And if none of the groups seem to be a good fit, there's another piece of paper that says, try to put me somewhere. I, I didn't, couldn't find a fit, but try to, try to find a place where I would fit. Again, we understand that putting people in groups doesn't guarantee that you'll experience community, but we want to give it a shot. And I want to also ask that you'd give us a little bit of grace in the sign-up process because I can guarantee you we will make a mistake. Some piece of paper is going to get lost and you're going to need to call back and remind us, hey, I signed up the paper but I never heard back. I just want to sign up again. Something's going to get lost, misplaced. We're going to make a mistake. But give, give us a little grace. At these tables today, there's some elders outside, some deacons, and some other people that will help you find a group that's a good fit for you, I want to close by reading a, a little paragraph from a book that's become a favorite. It's titled, The Seven Deadly Sins of Small Group Ministry. I just want to read this and see if you can empathize with this or relate as the worship team comes on up. It says, The dark side of falling in love with community is our inclination to form a holy huddle, either intentionally or unintentionally. We love the fellowship of the body so much that we become addicted to it, closing our doors to the outside. Yet, when we're on the outside looking in, we long to be invited into community. Remember when you were outside looking in, longing to be a part of things? Once invited, we fully believe we would freely offer this gift to others. Sadly, we don't. We hoard it. Protecting our newfound treasure from any interloper who might compromise our experience. Our arms stretch upward in the holy huddle we've discovered, but never extend toward those still searching for a place at the table of community. Here's all I'm asking Could, Could we expand the circle and pull up some extra chairs and give other people a seat at our table of community? Father, we're going to need your help to do this because we're people and we tend to mess up things. So we need you to come and help us to to be the family that you call us to be, brothers and sisters in Christ, the household of God. And I pray for our life group ministry that you would, would give your blessing to it and give people an opportunity to find a place to belong. It's in your name we pray, amen.